Support for this program is provided by Chevron. This is Politico Energy. I'm Annie Snyder. House Democrats redoubled their efforts this week to pass the bipartisan infrastructure bill and their sweeping $1.75 trillion climate and social spending bill. But intra-party fighting continues to hold up the measures. Even if House Speaker Nancy Pelosi manages to rally her members behind the packages, the reconciliation bill and its $555 billion for climate programs still faces a long road ahead in the Senate. Today, we have a special guest, Democratic Senator Ed Markey of Massachusetts, one of Congress's staunchest climate hawks. We talk about that bill's future and how the politics of climate and energy have changed in the decades since he led the last major legislative effort to confront the crisis. It's Friday, November 5th. So, Senator, the reconciliation bill would represent landmark climate legislation, but those programs have been significantly whittled down from how progressives had originally envisioned them. Do you feel like the bill at this point without the Clean Energy Performance Program does enough to rein in climate emissions? No, absolutely. Even without that one program, all of the rest of the programs in their totality will make it possible for President Biden to credibly tell the rest of the world that we will reduce our greenhouse gases by 50 percent by the year 2030. And so that's why it's critical that we pass the Build Back Better bill. It's why we just can't delay much longer. And when we complete it, it will be a message to the world that the United States is back and we are leaders. So at this point, the clean energy tax credits are the real engine of those climate provisions, right? So how far of the way towards President Biden's goals do you think those specifically get us? Well, in the utility sector specifically, it's over 70% of the reductions that we're trying to achieve by the year 2030. But across the board, it's not just in the utility sector with wind and solar and other clean energy technologies. It's also a 10-year tax break for plug-in hybrids, for all-electric vehicles, for battery storage technologies, for the transmission system in our country to be uh, overhauled, for any clean energy technology that reduces greenhouse gases. So it's an across-the-board tax break that is going to actually get us very close by itself uh, to the goals which we have established for 2030. Hmm. So the methane fee has been another provision that has caused some consternation among some of your colleagues. Do you see it surviving at this point? Well, we're still battling over the methane fee. Obviously, methane is 80 times more powerful than traditional greenhouse gases. And so we're working very hard to make sure we have a provision uh, in the final bill that incentivizes dramatic and quick reductions of methane into the atmosphere. And I'm still very optimistic that we will be able to reach an agreement that maybe doesn't have everything that I would want, but it still is substantial and will help us to meet the goal. And the important thing is that methane is important in the short term. Its life expectancy is not as high as traditional uh, greenhouse gases. So looking at 2030, uh, the more that we can reduce methane, the more likely we're going to reach the high goals that we've set for our country. So what do you make of the current methane fee thresholds in the bill? Well, again, we're still negotiating the methane 
fees. And again, I, I'm going to be flexible on that in the same way that I'm flexible on how we reduce greenhouse gases in general in the utility sector. There's a multitude of ways in which we can accomplish it. And all we're really looking for is for methane in its sector to be able to play a substantial role. And I'm going to be flexible in terms of what the mechanism is that we use in order to accomplish it. So the overall story that we've all been working off here is that it's your colleagues, Senator Manchin and Senator Sinema, who are the ones that have the final power to get this bill through or not. But in a 50-50 Senate, you have just as much power as they do to sink this piece of legislation. Do you feel like the Senate Majority Leader and the White House have fought hard enough for your priorities to the point that you're comfortable supporting the bill? No, absolutely. Chuck Schumer has been on board. Uh, President Biden has fought very hard. I mean, we're at a point where... This will be an historic piece of legislation with regard to the reduction of greenhouse gases in our economy. So we're near the finish line. We have to finish off the final pieces. But again, as I said before, once we do it, it's going to have a profound impact, not just in reduction of greenhouse gases, but also in the creation of millions of new jobs in our economy and finally, dealing with environmental justice issues that go right into communities of color, disadvantaged communities all across the United States. For the first time, we will be specifically targeting those communities for protections. So you're heading to the UN climate talks in Glasgow in a few days here, right? Given the state of play on reconciliation at the moment, what message do you plan to take to the rest of the world while you're there? The United States is in. We're back. We're serious. It's an administration that's serious with regard to its own administrative actions on increasing the fuel economy standards of the vehicles which we drive, from passenger cars all the way up to 18-wheel wheel of trucks and buses. They're going to set very high standards that reduce the amount of oil that is consumed in that transportation sector. But the same thing is true for the utility sector. The same thing is true for the legislation which Congress is going to be passing. And let's not forget, at the state and local level, mayors all across the Commonwealth of Massachusetts and all across the country uh, are leading on these issues. And I expect there to be a heightened ambition in the goals which are being set at the state and local level as well. And combined, we will reduce greenhouse gases by 50% by the year 2030. State and local, plus what Congress is about to do, plus what the administration can do on its own without Congress involved at all. Do you need Congress to have acted in order to be able to effectively convey that message when you're there? I think we're in a position where we can credibly represent to every country, every nonprofit group in the world that we're meeting with, that as the senators in the Democratic Party, and we're going to have to do it with all Democrats, that we can confidently promise every person we meet that we will finish that congressional agenda, put it on Joe Biden's desk, and then we're going to see an explosion of technology, and the rest of the world will be able to rely upon us once again as the leader on this issue. So no one knows better than you do how hard it is to get climate policy through Congress. What do you think has changed since Waxman-Markey died, what, a decade ago? What's changed since then? Well, now we've had 10 years of clean energy success in our country. In this present year, we're expecting to see upwards of 45,000 megawatts of wind 
and solar deployed in one year in the United States. Ten years ago, that would have been all of the wind and solar totally in our country from the beginning of time up to 10 years ago. So you can see how rapidly our production of renewable energy has ratcheted up. The same thing is true in all electric vehicles. And we also have now an army of activists all across our country that was largely uh, created in response to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and I introducing the Green New Deal. That's something that we did not have 10 years ago. We now have an army of activists, the Sunrise Movement, youth strikers who are out in force. And so back in 2009, when Henry Waxman and I passed our bill, that was an inside-out bill. We used our inside clout. What we're doing right now is outside in. It's the outside that has influenced the, the back room negotiations in the corridors of Capitol Hill. And they are responding to that pressure, to that enhanced interest in these issues. And right now, finally, we only need 51 votes. Back in 2009, we needed 60 votes. Because we're using reconciliation, and we know that the Republicans are going to be adamantly, obstinately opposed to anything that we do, unlike 2009, this time they can't stop us once Democrats agree on the final package. And that's a big political difference. So I think if you had told Democrats, both in Congress and out on the streets, exactly a year ago, say on Election Day, that they would be getting trillions of dollars in social programs and infrastructure and climate change by the end of President Biden's first year, people would have thought that you were being way too optimistic. But here we are now, and it feels like the mood, especially among progressives, is that the party is not doing enough and is abandoning some of what they promised to do. So why is that? Did Democrats set the expectations too high? No, we necessarily set the goals high. And by the way, that's the essence of the Green New Deal. We didn't just talk about the science of climate change and the solutions, which was the deployment of technologies universally, but we also talked about intersectionality. We talked about environmental justice. We talked about communities of color and marginalized communities that historically had been left behind. We talked about healthcare and jobs and education and justice. It's all in the Green New Deal. It's only 14 pages long, but it's the template uh, for the political action that uh, young people engaged in over the last couple of years. And now this reconciliation package captures every aspect of what we were talking about. And maybe it's not quite as high as we wanted, but ultimately it's going to be the biggest package that we've seen in generations. And the key is it's focusing on helping families with their children, helping families with their seniors in terms of their care, ensuring that this free pre-K for every child in our country, age three and four, while creating millions of new jobs uh, in wind and solar and all electric vehicles and all of these industries that are now just going to be unleashed. So it pretty much captures everything we were talking about in the Green New Deal and what we don't complete right now. That's our agenda for the next election in 2022. We'll run on it because we're very confident that it's a winning message for our country. 
Well, the Virginia election on Tuesday was a big test of that, right? And a, a test of the general mood around the administration's performance thus far. And by and large, it seems like people maybe don't feel great about it. Do you think that this drawn out tug of war within your party here in Congress has hurt the administration? Do you think that it's going to get worse as we head into the midterms? We're going to finish this bill. It's going to create a political engine for democratic victories all across the country in 2022. We just have to finish it in the next couple of weeks. We will. And then you'll see that in 2022, the Republicans will be trying to defend why they voted against millions of new jobs being created, why they voted against pre-K for every child in America, why did they vote against uh, taking care of grandma and grandpa trying to keep them at home. And then I want to see how they feel in the final two weeks before the election of 2022. They will be on the defensive once we get this bill passed. For more news on energy and the environment, subscribe to our newsletter at politico.com slash morningenergy. Some of the music in today's show was composed by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Carlos Prieto and Nermo Malaykul are our producers. Raghu Manavalan is our senior editor of audio. Our senior producer is Jenny Ament. Irene Noguchi is Politico Audio's executive producer. Our editors are Matt Daly and Gloria Gonzalez. I'm Annie Snyder, and we'll see you on Monday. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Did you know that Chevron supports the ambitions of the Paris Agreement? In fact, they've even tied their executives' compensation to lowering the carbon emissions intensity of their operations. Because it's only human to help power a brighter future. Learn more at chevron.com slash lowercarbon.